Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. I'm looking forward very much to the, the Sundays when Nick is going to take us through the book of Psalms. I've said before, I'm not sure whether you're allowed to have favorite books or not, but that certainly would be one of mine if I were allowed to. So I'm looking forward to that. But we have a little bit of unfinished business because some, a couple of months ago now, we looked at the first part of the doctrine of salvation. It was while we were still on Zoom, and I talked that on that occasion about what are we saved from? We talk about salvation, but salvation must surely mean something. We need to be saved from something. And if you look at the notes that are in front of you, you'll see that we're saved from a number of things. We're saved from condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. We're saved from spending an eternity in hell. We don't think about that an awful lot because the sun's shining and it's, it's wonderful out. Who wants to think about hell? But we're saved from an eternity there. We're saved from the power, the dominion, the rule of sin in our lives. In Romans chapter 5, Paul writes the following. He says, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts and do not go on in presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then he goes on to say, verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So we have salvation from the power of sin in our lives. We have salvation from the influence of Satan. There's an awful lot of talk today, I hear, and when I listen to a lot of sermons and that on, on YouTube, and a lot of people talking about, we need to bind Satan, we need to bind Satan. Seems to be a popular phrase nowadays. I have news for you. Satan is bound. There's no need for you to do that. He has bound. He was bound when Jesus died on the cross. We need to be careful talking too much about binding Satan. We, we can be freed from his influence. He is bound. He has no dominion over us. And we can be freed from the anxiety of life. The number one killer in modern Western society is anxiety. More people are dying as a result of mental health problems linked to anxiety than any other single cause. The Bible says we can be free from the destructive nature of anxiety. Jesus can free us from its grasp. And I know this, this is a struggle for many, many folk. And I advise always to keep up whatever you're doing. Keep up your therapy if that's what you're having. Keep it up. Stay on your medication by all means. But keep on repenting of your anxiety. Keep on bringing it to God and asking him for deliverance, because he is a God of deliverance. But let's then turn to our statement of faith. I've printed it out for you on the notes. This is what our statement of faith says about this doctrine else of salvation. The theologians would call it soteriology, the study of salvation. Salvation is entirely a work of God's grace and cannot be earned or deserved. It has been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ and is offered to all in the gospel. God, in his love, forgives sinners whom he calls. 
granting them repentance and faith. All who believe in Christ are justified by faith alone, adopted into the family of God, and receive eternal life. And those of you who have come into church membership, certainly over the last year or so, we would have sent you a copy of that, and you would have read it, and we would have said to you, can you live with this doctrine? Is there anything that you object to into this doctrine? You agree to this doctrine? This is what we believe about salvation. And I want to draw four things from it. This is not a passage of scripture. It's the words of men. But still, I believe the words are important, and I believe the words are scriptural. So I'm going to take it sentence by sentence. And I'm going to talk, first of all, about the preamble to our salvation. Then we're going to look at the purchase of our salvation. And then quickly at the process of our salvation. And finally, the provision of our salvation. So first of all, the preamble. Salvation is entirely a work of God's grace and cannot be earned or deserved. That's really, really important. That's the starting point. We've spoken before of the doctrine of some people have called total depravity. R.C. Sproul says he prefers the term, we have this radical inability. We have a radical inability to do anything, say anything, think anything that God can be pleased about. At root, we are sinners. At root, we are unable to do anything that pleases God. We are totally unable to do that. Nothing we can do earns or deserves his love and his favorable judgment. Nothing at all. Even our best works, Paul says, are like, are like filthy rags. Jonathan Edwards says, the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. So, Jesus came, died on the cross for us, not to give us good health necessarily, although he may do that, not to fill our pockets with wealth, although he may choose to do that as well, but to lift us from the death of this radical inability to please him. Jesus came to lift us from this total inability to do anything about it. I remember as a, a military officer many years ago when we were uh, fighting in Angola in the 1970s, end of the 1970s. I remember on one occasion loading a, a young fellow who'd been badly injured onto a helicopter to rush him to medical facilities further down. And I got the news back shortly later by telex, as we had in those days. And the letters were D-O-A. D-O-A. Dead on arrival. It was very sad. The sad thing is, there is a sense in which every one of, us, one of us, as we come into this world, are dead on arrival. Paul uses that word again and again and again in Romans 3, in Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And sometimes I feel like saying, what part of the word dead do we not understand? Dead is dead. The problem is that we feel, we sense we're alive. We sense we can please God. We feel that we can do something really good to, to, to gain his favor, but we can't. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Only he can help us. And sometimes it's not helped by some of the analogies you hear. Also, again, listening to a sermon, uh, the preacher gave an analogy of, of um, a person drowning in, 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 a, in a swimming pool or a, a pond. 
and somebody throws in a life belt, and on the life belt is written Jesus. And you see the life belt, and you swim towards it, and you grab hold of it, and you're saved. That's not an analogy of Christian salvation at all. Christian salvation says this, you're lying dead at the bottom of the pool. You're dead. You're drowned. And he comes down and he lifts you up and he gives you life. That's more like it. That's the real analogy. The only way in which you can ever begin to talk about salvation is to start with God's grace. God's granting us his favor. and Nothing we can do to deserve it. God in his grace reaches out and provides an answer to our fatal dilemma. Why does he do it? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, and it's mentioned three or four times in the first eight or nine verses, simply to the praise of his glory. That's why you and I are saved, to the praise of his glory. And we can keep on asking that question again and again and again, Lord, why me? Why have you saved me? And the answer is always the same, to the praise of his glory. We get the same answer every time. So the preamble is then that there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It is all of God. Secondly, how was this salvation purchased? It has been accomplished, our statement says, by the, by the Lord Jesus Christ and is offered to all in the gospel. How did Jesus Christ then accomplish our redemption? And this is where we come to a doctrine called the atonement. The doctrine of the atonement. He paid the price for our sin. And what is frightening is that in a movement called the progressive evangelicalism today, the new evangelicalism, there's, this is the doctrine that's coming under attack. Many people in so-called evangelical churches are now saying, this atonement bit, it's a bit too bloody. Why would God have to kill his son in order for us to bring salvation. Why all this blood and death and gore? So let's bypass the atonement. Let's find, let, let's see something quite different. And so there's an attempt to rewrite what Christ did for us on the cross. Yet the Old Testament is full of examples, of shadows, of types, of how this takes place. So Abraham, right in the beginning, is about to sacrifice his son, and God gives him a substitute. It's a ram tied up in the thorns and caught in the thicket, and he takes that ram and slaughters the ram and presents a, a, a sacrifice and his son is saved. The thorns, in our case in the New Testament, are not in the thicket. They're on the head of our Lord Jesus. The story of the Exodus is a story of atonement. It's a story of rescue. The blood of a very young lamb, a lamb without blemish, killed and its blood put on the doorposts. And the whole nation is delivered. And so it is for us today. No one but Jesus could have done this for us. Not Moses, not David, not Elijah, not even John the Baptist. Only one, the God-man, the sinless man, and the truly divine Son of God, sent by his Father to his own death. And that's something that I've been reading a lot about lately. I read some time ago that the phrase, God permitted his Son to be killed, Actually, no, I don't think that's biblical. God sent his son to be killed. The Bible talks about God the Father crushing his own son. If Pilate had found him innocent, he still would have found a way to crush the son. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, there's that really difficult passage for me of Christ before his crucifixion, praying to his father while his disciples have fallen asleep. And he says on one moment, he says, if it be possible that this cup should pass from me, but thy will be done. A moment he's saying, if it's at all possible, this cup, I shouldn't have to drink from this cup. Lord, let it be, but, but I understand your will be done. And I wonder, what's, what's that cup all about? What cup is that? I believe strongly that that cup is nothing less than the very wrath of God. Christ is going to experience the wrath of the Father on the cross. That's what it's like. The wrath of God, the cup that Christ must drink of. And on a bright Sunday morning, I thought, do I even want to talk about the horrors of crucifixion? Do I really want to remind us about that? Commentator Jim Bishop, historian Jim Bishop, says the following, describing Christ's agony on that cross. He says, his arms were now in a V position. And Jesus became conscious of two unendurable consequences. The first was the pain in his wrists that was beyond bearing and the muscle cramps that knotted his forearms and upper arms and the pads of his shoulders. The second was that his pectoral muscles and the sides of his chest were momentarily paralyzed. This induced in him an involuntary panic for he found that while he could draw air into his lungs, he was powerless to exhale. At once Jesus raised himself off his bleeding feet and as the weight of his body came down on the insteps, the single nail pressed hard against the top of the wound. Slowly and steadily, Jesus was forced to raise himself higher and higher until the moment his head hid the sign that told of his crime. When his shoulders were on a level with his hands, Breathing was rapid and easier. Like the other two crucified alongside of him, he fought the pain in his feet in order to breathe rapidly for just a few moments. And then unable to bear the pain below, which cramped legs and thighs and wrung moans from the strongest, he let his torso sag again lower and lower. And his knees projected a little at a time until with a deep sigh, he felt himself to be hanging by his wrists and this process must have been repeated again and again. For me, for me, for you. And all of this against modern attempts to make Jesus somehow a different Jesus. I read about a Jesus doll that's coming to this country. It's being manufactured in Florida. It's on sale in Florida at the moment by a Christian Organization. It's called the Jesus Doll, fully machine washable, $29.95, and it's designed to help children discover Jesus. It's a floppy toy. can provide solace for the elderly and the infirm, for those in recovery programs and those under emotional distress. In other words, what kind of solace and comfort can the doll provide that the real Jesus cannot? Is the real Jesus not able to do that? And the advertisement says simply, it's hard to hug fresh air. <laughs> so you've got to hug the Jesus doll. And there's more dolls to come to complete the line. There's the Mary doll that's coming, heaven help us. And then the God doll, a two foot tall prototype, white haired and bearded, 
wearing a rainbow-colored robe and completely machine-washable. That's not our God. That's not our Jesus. It's not the Jesus of history or the Jesus of Scripture. It's nothing less to me than a blasphemy of the highest order. My Jesus, the removal of my guilt, once for all, no need for me to keep earning my salvation, if I, even if I could, through a variety of rituals and tasks. And this is offered to all in the gospel. We'll come back to that in just a moment. What is the process then of this salvation? What happens? God in his love, this is the third sentence of our statement, God in his love forgives sinners whom he calls, granting them repentance and faith. In Romans chapter 8, we read the following. If you'd like to turn there, Romans chapter 8, from the very well-known verse 28 to start with. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would become the firstborn among many brethren. And those he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So here we have a process, a divine economy, a divine uh, application, if you like. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Bible scholars sometimes wonder, hasn't he left something out? What, but what about between justification and glorification? Justification happens at conversion. Glorification happens when we go to be him, with him in heaven. What about sanctification? Is it possibly left out? Well, not really. I like what John Piper says. He says, once we are justified, we enter into a process of what he calls progressive glorification. Sanctification is nothing more than progressive glorification. Our glorification starts the moment we're saved and goes on and on from glory to glory, as the scripture says, until we are with him. Now, I'm not going to get into the endless date about foreknowledge, data uh, uh, about foreknowledge and predestination. I'm not going to go there today. We've had talks about that. Safe to say that God had you in his divine mind long before the world was created. And that alone should blow our minds. The plan of salvation and the identity of the saved was known by God before time. He decreed it so. He planned it so. He predetermined it. And the cross was the focus of God's eternal design for salvation, redemption. But our statement talks about calling. He calls us. Now, how are we called? How does God go about calling us? Because unless he calls us, we can't come. We, the picture is not of people desperately searching for God. The Bible says clearly no man searches for God. We only search as the result of being first called by him. And most of, for most of us, that calling takes place in a number of ways. It could be a Christian home. The influence of a Christian home could be the calling. A good church where the Bible is preached would be a form of calling. Um, a Bible lesson or a Bible tract, good Christian friends who share testimony with you. God is calling. This is how God calls people. 
When Billy Graham used to preach those massive, to those massive stadiums full of people, that was a way of God calling to individuals. God does in his grace, remember, in his grace, he calls us. And when he calls us, the Bible says, when, when he is ready, in his time, not our time, in his time, he gifts us two things. He gifts us two things. Look at the statement. God, in his love, forgives sinners whom he calls, granting them two things, repentance and faith. Now, repentance is the first one. Repentance is the ability to truly see the extent of our sinfulness. Repentance is, is absolutely essential. It is the God-given ability to see ourselves as we truly are in God's eyes. When we so-called feel the presence of God, we feel one thing, or we should feel one thing alone, and that is total devastation. We prostrate ourselves before him and we cry for mercy. I hear a lot of people saying, well, I really felt the presence of God, believe me. If you really felt the presence of God, you've been on your face. Isaiah, when he sees God up on the, on the throne, remember that Isaiah chapter 6, and saw the Lord high and lifted up. What does he do? He throws himself on the ground and he says, woe is me. That word woe is me is basically saying, God, kill me. Judge me. I'm not worthy of living. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the middle of a people of unclean lips. Kill me, Lord. That's what happens when we really feel the presence of God. We sense our desperate sinfulness. I enjoy sometimes the preaching of Brian Houston at Hillsong. Uh, sometimes. But I disagreed with something he said the other day, absolutely. He was criticized, as he often is, for not preaching repentance and not preaching sin. And in this particular sermon, he answered that. And this is exactly what he said. I wrote it down. He said, I don't preach sin and I don't preach repentance because people know they are sinners and they know they need to repent. Mr. Houston, they don't. They don't. That's why you preach repentance and you repeat sin. Unfortunately, if you don't preach repentance and you don't preach sin, you end up with a form of easy believism. Where all I do is I come to Jesus and he loves me and I love him and we all go on. And I never, never deal with my sin. And he never has the opportunity to deal with my sin. The closer we come to God, in fact. And this is strange. It almost sounds as if it shouldn't be this way. But the closer we come to God, the holier he becomes. The closer we come to God in our Christian lives, the more we see our sin, not the less. The danger is when we come closer and closer to God, we somehow feel that he becomes more gentle, more tolerant, and more accessible to our demands. But you know you're close to God when you feel your sin the way God sees it. So that's the first thing God gives us. He gives us this concept of repentance, this ability to see our sin and to, to throw ourselves before him in repentance. And the second gift he gives us is faith. He gives us the gift of faith. That is the capacity to truly believe with heart and mind. It's a gift. You may think it's coming from your own initiative, but it isn't. Paul, again, writing to the Ephesians, this time in the second chapter, says, For by grace you have been saved, how? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. 
So even our faith is a gift from him. And without that gift from him, we cannot believe. He gives us that wonderful gift. And it's all about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Our statement of faith says very clearly that God, in his love, forgives sinners. I wonder if we talk about forgiveness enough nowadays. It's one of the most undiscussed factors, I think, in all of human existence. How many of you husbands here today could raise a hand and say, you're only where you are today because you have a wonderfully forgiving wife? Absolutely. I certainly can say that. There's a project on the go at Leeds University right now. It's not a Christian project. It's not even a religious project. It's a project called the Forgiveness Project. To try to get people to understand that forgiveness is one of the key ways of building and understanding relationships. Instead of carrying bitterness around with you in your heart because people have said this about you and said that about you, learn to forgive them. It's a common human thing and we don't do it. But the Bible talks about forgiveness as being really central. God forgives us. You know, and you, and you look at your own heart and you look at your own sin and I look at mine and I say, really, Lord? Can you really forgive all of that? He says, yes, I've forgiven it. I've paid the price for it. And then finally, let me finish by looking at the final statement of our statement of faith about salvation. The provisions of our salvation. We've already talked about forgiveness. And all who believe in Christ are justified by faith alone, adopted into the family of God, and receive eternal life. There are many provisions in salvation. We can talk about reconciliation, redemption, all of these wonderful things. But here are several. Justification by faith. We are justified by faith. That was the great word, the great understanding that Martin Luther had that kicked off the Reformation uh, over 500 years ago now. The just shall live by faith. He reads it in the book of Habakkuk. He reads it in the book of Romans. The just shall live by faith. Those who are justified by faith shall live. And one of the battle cries of the Reformation is sola fide, by faith alone. You don't have to do anything. It's God's grace and it's your faith that is given to you. Works are the necessary. Anything we do is necessary outcome of our salvation. But it's not the way in which we earn it. Faith without works, yes, is dead. It is dead. It's very dead. Faith that doesn't result in some kind of work, some kind of change of life, is very dead. A tree that bears no fruit when it's meant to bear fruit is not worth having. As Jesus says in John 15, tear it out. Get rid of it. But the fruit, the works, don't cause the salvation. It's the faith that brings the salvation. Justification, a once-for-all verdict. Not guilty. And when we hear that word not guilty pronounced over our own lives, I believe in the scripture I think says this, that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner that is so proclaimed, not guilty. And then he talks about adoption into the family of God. Here's another gift. Adoption into the family of God. I thought about this for a good while. And this means not just adoption into a local body of his people like Stain's Congregational, but adoption into the grand congregation of all believers of all ages. We drafted into that mass choir 
that will sing together the praises of the, of the, at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. We're given the title son and daughter, as we sang earlier. A different type of relationship altogether. Do we even begin to grasp what it could possibly mean that we are sons and daughters of the living God? What that means for us is just, it's just staggering. We could, we could talk about that day in and day out. And then we are gifted an eternal reward. Yes, the rewards are available in this life. There are many rewards. Many of you prayed this morning giving thanks for things that God has done for you. There are many rewards. But the real rewards are in the next life, far beyond what we can possibly imagine. Spurgeon says... Do you remember the story of the three wonders in heaven? The first wonder was that we should see so many there that we did not expect to see. The second wonder is that we should miss so many that we did expect to see. But the greatest wonder of all is to see ourselves there. That's the gift. That's God's grace. Is there anything I could have done to deserve that? Is there anything in my life that would guarantee me a place in heaven? No, not a thing. It's his grace. So I come to the conclusion. I have to ask two questions. You always have to finish by asking a couple of questions, you see. And the first question I have to ask is, are you saved? Is this your salvation? And it's a question that any occupier of any gospel pulpit needs to ask. Are you saved? And some will say, well, but why do you ask that question? We're all Christians here, whether we're here or on, on Zoom. We're all Christians. Why do you ask the question? Well, to be absolutely frank, if I knew for certain that we were all Christians, then I wouldn't ask the question. But I have neither the knowledge nor the right to assume that everyone who hears my voice this morning has indeed come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus. You see, being a Christian is not just a matter of mumbling some so-called sinner's prayer some, somewhere in the distant past. But a Christian is one who is totally committed to living a life of obedience and service to Christ. The assurance we have of this fact that we belong to Jesus is not about what we feel. It's because of what we know. You see, you know you're a true believer if you've committed yourself heart and soul to the Lord Jesus. You know you're a true believer because your life is sometimes slowly, often with setbacks, but nonetheless increasingly evidencing the work of and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day -day experience. I'm going to say that one more time. You know you are a true believer because your life is sometimes slowly, often with setbacks, but nonetheless increasingly evidencing the work of and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your day-to-day -day life. Healthy branches produce healthy fruit. According to Galatians chapter 5, the 22nd, 23rd verse, the fruit of the Spirit is mentioned. You can read them there. And so we ask ourselves the question this morning, are we more loving than we were a year ago? Are we more joyful than this time last year? Are we more at peace? Are we slowly becoming more patient? More kind? Is our life month by month growing in goodness? 
Are we more faithful this year than last? Are we more gentle now than we were in the past? And do we have greater self-control than this time last year? If we can answer most of those questions positively, then we can know that we're a child of God. That's what he does. He bears fruit in our lives. If we can't answer those questions, or very few of them, then I suggest, no, I, I plead, in fact, to come to him in repentance and throw yourself on him, on his mercy, and commit yourself to him, heart and soul, and he will make you his. And do it today. Final question. To those who know they are children of, of Christ, are you telling others about it? Christ says that the, this gospel will be, uh, the, uh, sorry, our statement of faith says that the faith is, this gospel will be, is offered to all. But how is the gospel offered to all? Who does that offering? Romans chapter 10. I'm going to read just a few verses from Romans 10, verse 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For Whoever call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul continues, How then will they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him who they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? How will they hear without a, pre without a preacher? And I'm using the word preacher here in its widest sense. Anyone who shares the gospel of Christ in my definition now as a preacher. And I, I, have, to, I have to share this with you. I'm going to talk to the men first. I, I include the women here as well, but men particularly. Particularly those of you who are young and starting careers, or those of you who are in careers and have maybe a decade or two left in that career. Let me ask you a question to consider this morning. Do you have God's permission not to be doing full-time Christian ministry? Do you have God's permission not to be doing full-time Christian ministry? We always ask the wrong question. Lord, do you want me to become a minister? Do you want me to do ministry? That's the wrong question. Lord, do I have your permission not to? For those who are of my age and older and in retirement, my plea to you is to stop talking about retirement and start talk, talking about redeployment. Yes, there comes a time, and I know, and it approaches all of us when we no longer will have the physical nor even maybe the mental capacity to do what we want to do for Christ. But until that day, until that day, we are called to be his servants. We are called to be his ambassadors, no matter how old we are. We are called to be his ambassadors, all of us, men and women. Why is it that 20% of the people in our church do 80% of the work? It's a cry for evangelism. We need to do more evangelism, but what does that mean? It means that each and every member evangelizes. It's not about putting programs in place, policies, procedures, but it's about personal contacts, personal befriending, personal evangelism. We are all preachers. I'm going to call the musicians up if you don't mind coming up at this moment. We are all to be preachers. We are all soldiers 
as Paul likes to put it, in the army of the king. And we are all on the front line. When I was in military service in Southern Africa, I, I volunteered to move from an administrative service function to a frontline function. A lot of people say, why did you do that? Why did you move from being a, a kind of administrative clerk to becoming an infantryman? And the main reason I did it is that I had no fear of death, whereas a lot of people did. And I felt I had to be at the front line where, because I didn't fear death, let me be there. We're all on the front line. You see, in this war, none are held in reserve. We're all on the battlefront. We're offered the armor of God and told to put it on. And yet there are still some, even many, who are content to stay behind in the camp while others do the fighting. And my last plea to you this morning is this. Stand up. Stand up for Jesus and be soldiers of the cross.